0: When did it become easy to sin? Any one of us who is a parent and is has raised children, learn very quickly in that child's life that they are sinners. Now, Of course, when they're born, they're the first child born in the world. They're the perfect child, and we bring them home, and we treat them such. I was with a group this week teaching a class and uh, a bunch of young married couples, and two of them have babies, and they have technology on their devices with a camera on where the child is and where they can watch the child in the iPhone where they are. And I go, I'm so glad I don't have small children today. We closed the doors when we were parents, but be that as it may, you're better parents than we were. And um, those little children, probably, what, six, seven, nine months You'll see rebellion in them, won't you? At some point, they will arch their back, they will spit something out of their mouth at you, and that little innocent boy or girl is not so innocent. Now, they're innocent in that they're not exposed to evil, but there is a sin nature in all of us. In our culture, in our context, our world, things have changed so rapidly in the last two, three decades, it's hard to keep up with it. Uh, We had bullying when we were kids, but now we have bullying through technology that is cruel and brutal and causing children to take their own lives because of the horrible things that 140 characters or a Tumblr picture or some message that can be sent to many, many people at one time to elementary, junior high, high school kids. The advent of putting naked pictures of yourself on here and spreading it around and the damage that that has done. And we're in a culture that is so steeped in sin. It's just too easy. Teenagers learn to be a little bit better, young adults learn to be a little bit more shrewd. We can live in immorality, we can lie, we can deceive, and we can cover our tracks when we become adults and we get professional at it. We can cheat, we can edge on the ethics of things, we can gossip, we can mislead others, we can have improper affairs, relationships with other people, we can experiment with drugs, we can abuse drugs, we can abuse substances. When did it get easy to sin? There's no simple answer to it. Maybe the better question is, when did it become so hard to repent? I don't think you can distill it down to 10 factors, but I do think there's one overarching factor, and that's self, me, I. When I wake up in the morning, I share many times, my concern is about me, As wonderful as a bride as Cindy is, I really don't think a lot about her. I think about me. I think about coffee in my cup. I think about my shower. I think about, though I don't think about her, first thing out of my brain. And I'm a selfish person. I look at life through that lens. Yes, we do good things. Yes, we help. Yes, we try to, but when when a culture makes our personal rights the most important thing, we've turned self into a god. If it's all about me, how I feel, how I define it, what I want to do, it's my right. I can choose this. You can't tell me what to believe. You can't tell me what's right and wrong. And we're living in a culture where everything, moral relativism, is flat. There's no truth for anyone. And if you stand up and say this is true, be prepared to be hit over the head. Because you're the outlier if you believe something the culture doesn't believe. It's how I was made. I'm free. I can choose to do this. It doesn't matter what anyone thinks. I'm my own person. You can't tell me. And we all have those messages in nuances and compartments of our soul, don't we? We can play the game pretty well. Why is it so easy to sin, and why is it so hard to repent? Last weekend, Bill mentioned that we are in a section that is hard, that is dark. In fact, if you open your Bible to Luke 22, I want to do a little bit of a review just to get us up to speed. Luke 22, verse 53, where Bill concluded last weekend, Luke 22, verse 53, Jesus, while I was with you daily in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this hour. And the power of darkness are yours. So we are entering a dark segment of the text. The betrayal and the denial stories teach us a lot of large themes. Number one, uh, Jesus knew a lot of things. He knew that Judas was going to betray him, he knew that Peter was going to deny him. Jesus, under the shadow of his uh, arrest, his betrayal, his denial, um, the Disciples concern he has for them. He's going to be beaten and mocked. He's concerned about his 11. He's even concerned about this slave whose ears cut off at Gethsemane. And yet the shadow of death and darkness are so heavy over him as he is about to go to the cross. Jesus will confront the Jewish leaders who arrest him in that passage. And essentially he's saying they're cowards and they're schemers because they're coming under the cover of night. It was illegal for the Sanhedrin to do what they did. The Sanhedrin had control over the civil and uh, religious law, but not criminal law. They had to go to Rome for Rome to uh, impact criminal law. They couldn't execute. They couldn't carry out punishment for capital offenses, what we call felonies. They could only judge in civil and religious matters. So they lived under Rome's authority. So they go in the cover of night to do this. And so the tone of the passage is ominous. The arrest is at night, and Jesus says the hour of darkness. Now all Gospels include Peter's denial. We have—some of this is review, some of you—it might be new. We have three synoptics, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and we have the different one, John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are similar. Mark's the oldest and the hardest. Luke is the longest. Matthew is about the kingdom, primarily targeted to the Jew. And John is a completely different ball. John is a theological masterpiece. It's the simplest Greek language in the Bible and the deepest theology all in one package. It's a fathomless gospel. So we put them together to harmonize them. All four have the denial account. Not all four gospels record all the same things. And some have much more detail than others. And so we look at those when we look at Peter's denial to sew some of it together. It is a bit of a puzzle, and so we have to do that. Now, to give you a timeline, and these are approximate, Jesus is probably interrupted in Gethsemane at the wine press, the the picture of the olive press. Uh, He's interrupted at that, it's a figure of speech, Gethsemane, he's being crushed down. About 2.30 in the morning, this group comes to arrest him with torches and swords. And between 2.30 in the morning, And 9 a.m., six illegal trials will take place. And we'll show you the slide if you want to copy down and look it up for your own personal study. Those six trials, if they were, quote-unquote, are mock trials. They're illegal. They're done without Rome's acknowledgment. And when they finally involve Pilate and Herod in it, it's really de facto complete. It's too late. When they go into the cover of night, this happens so quickly, to put it in perspective, about two thirty in the morning, about nine, Jesus will be on the cross. So this happens very fast. The section we're going to look into today is about the denial of Peter. And then next week we'll look at the mocking and beating that Christ endures as well as the trial. If you have twenty-two open, look again at verse 33 to get our context. Chapter 22, verse 33, we read, Lord, Peter says, with you I'm ready to go both to prison and to death. He was tenacious. He was, I'm going to go with you, Lord, and I believe he meant every word of it. In contrast, Jesus will say to him in verse 31 and following, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied three times that you know me. We've got the well-intentioned, I'm going to do it, but very weak Peter. And we've got the steadfast master who knows what's going to happen. Now, Luke's account is sort of forensic, and we'll look at it. He's going to have three accusations and three denials, and they're sort of a staccato. But at the bigger picture, we have Satan as the one who's the great accuser, and Jesus is the one who's the great defender of Peter. So if you go way up in the stratosphere, theologically speaking, this is about how Satan is going to influence Peter during this time period and how Christ will defend and restore Peter. We know the story too well, perhaps. Verses 31 and 32 of Luke 22. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. He's telling him, Simon, I love you and I know, but Satan is going to sift you. And when he does, my prayer is that when you've turned, you'll strengthen your brothers. And we know the rest of the story, don't we? By the time of Acts, Peter preaches a sermon and 3,000-some people come to Christ. He's a changed man. But we're going to read about his denial today. The narrative is interesting. It's all about Peter with one little tiny phrase from Jesus. So let's begin at the house of Caiaphas, verse 20, chapter 22, verse 54. Having arrested him, they led him away and brought him to the house of the high priest. But Peter was following at a distance. In John 18, we learn that John knew Caiaphas. Annas is mentioned in one of the Gospels, and Caiaphas is mentioned in another. Annas was the father-in-law of Caiaphas. Caiaphas is the acting high priest. Once you're a high priest, you're always a high priest. It's like being a governor. You may be out of office, but we still call you governor. You might be a marine. You might be out, we still call you marine. And that's how the, the term uh, wasn't in the first century. You didn't act as the high priest, but we always gave you the title. So, Annas is a father-in-law, and they go to Caiaphas. John has a relationship with Caiaphas. And we learn from John 18, that's sort of the ticket in. You go backstage because you know someone. That's precisely what's happened. So, Peter and John are allowed to go in Caiaphas' home into his courtyard. Notice the phrase in verse 54, but Peter was following at a distance. Let's give Peter some credit. He said, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death, and at least he's following. Yes, he's afraid, but at least he's following. And yes, he's afraid, but he goes in on John's coattails, and they're in the courtyard, and that's the scene that we're going to read about. Now, we get to see a little bit of a context here that's kind of fun. We have three pictures. This is known as the Church of St. Peter in Galicantu. Galicantu is a Latin word that means the rooster crows. The building you're looking at is not, of course, the one that Peter was in, but, uh, or Jesus, but um, the area and geography are probably uh, pretty close, if not within 100 yards, give or take. It's, it could very well be the spot. Um, this particular structure was built in 1931. It had been destroyed and rebuilt a number of times, but the one that's there today. And it is God's will for you to go to Israel, and when you go, we will take you here so you can see it. Uh, the second picture is a statue of an artist capturing it, and I. I don't care much for the artwork over there, but I love the rooster on the top, which is why I like to show that picture. And the last one is the most important one. The last picture are the ancient steps that come out of the bottom of Caiaphas' house. Now, to understand antiquities homes, you had a perimeter, you had a gate, like a compound, and you had dwelling places, and the middle was an open courtyard. There was there was usually an egress outside to go out another way. And these particular steps come out of the bottom of Caiaphas' home. They're there. They were there in the time of Christ, and up at the top of the hill is the basement of uh, Caiaphas' home, if that was in fact his home. Now, when you go there, we go inside Galicantu and down into the crypts, and there are holding places that could have been used for grain or other things, and many believe that was the very prison holding cell that Jesus spent that night when he's taken from Gethsemane to Caiaphas' home. If it wasn't the very chambers and rooms, uh, it certainly gives you a good idea of what it was like. But these steps were not moved. These steps have been there since the first century, and they go down, most importantly, to the Kidron Valley. So Jesus comes from Gethsemane. You can't move the Mount of Olives. You can't move Gethsemane to Caiaphas' house. He goes down into the Kidron. You can't move the Kidron Valley. So you're only talking about, you know, A hundred yards, one way or the other, where these things occur, and that's one of the beauties of going there and getting a picture of it. Peter is inside, warming himself, along with the fire of his enemies. When we see Easter pageants, we generally see four or five people huddled around a campfire, don't we? In the courtyard, you probably had a huge fire pit. If Caiaphas is the high priest, he had a large courtyard because he had entourages who were in there all the time. And so they would come in groups. There were 70 in the Sanhedrin alone. Not that he could entertain or house 70, but certainly he had a large enough courtyard. That was where you did entertaining. And so envision a giant fire pit with lots of wood on it and lots of people warming themselves by the fire as they're wondering what's going on in those meetings. What's going on with, uh, before Caiaphas and before the other Sanhedrin leaders? Verse 55, the accusations and denials. After they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter was sitting among them. And a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the firelight, stop for just a second. You've sat around a fire pit on a lake or in your backyard or when you're camping out. If you've got a, a, even a good sized fire, if you're not sitting really close to the fire, you can't see people's faces, can you? You can sort of define there's a person there and I know their voice. So we're getting some nice imagery here that she's by the firelight and looking intently at him. So she's checking them out. Is this the guy? Luke gives us some nice details. Said, this man was with him too, but he denied it, saying, woman, I do not know him. A little later, another saw him and said, you are one of them too. But Peter said, man, I am not. After about an hour had passed, another man began to insist, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he is a Galilean too. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. Immediately while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. So we have three accusations, verse 56, 58, and 59, and each of them has a dial. The girl accuses him, a man, another man. In the first century, unfortunately, a woman's testimony was ipso facto immaterial. It didn't matter. A woman could not testify, but two men could. And you needed two men to confirm something in antiquity. And so we have the two men saying this. In Mark chapter 14, we read the last curse, that, uh, the last uh, denial that uh, Peter curses and swears. That does not mean Jesus, uh, that Peter used some expletives. It means he swore upon himself cur- a curse if he was lying. So don't see Peter as going offhanded and using some cuss words. He's, he's, he's swearing, if I'm lying, let me be cursed. That's the expression as best we can understand. And while he is speaking, the rooster crowed. In all of the Gospels, as you read these accounts, they're a little different. They're a bit of a puzzle. But what is interesting is he never mentions Jesus name. It strikes me if this was your closest friend in life for the past three years and the things Peter had seen, the things that Jesus had empowered Peter to do, the fact that Peter was the first among the equals, the fact that Peter would lead the church in Jerusalem, that would spawn the entire globe, a huge instrument in God's hand. And yet he can't he, he can't deny. If, if he doesn't use his name, then I, if I use his name. I admit I know him. And the Galilean is one, less, is one more turn of the screw because the area of the Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, that's where they were from. They were fishermen. Their dialect is picked up on just like it is in any other part of the country when you come from south and you go to New York and vice versa. We know you're not from around here. He's a Galilean. Well, the look in verse 61 and 62, the Lord turned and looked. If you're a person who takes notes in your Bible, I would circle or underline those two verbs. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he told him, before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Jesus is probably being moved from Caiaphas' inner chamber across the courtyard, and at that last denial, when he says, man, I don't, know, I don't know him, I don't know anything about him, I certainly have nothing to do with him, and right about that time, Jesus turns and makes eye contact with his friend. It's a chilling scene to me. The one denied is, confronts the denier. Satan, the accuser, has sifted Peter, and Jesus will defend him yet. What do we learn from Peter's denial? We all heard the expression, our greatest strength, taken one step too far, becomes our greatest liability. I think it's true of Peter. Peter's strength was his mouth. He asked great questions. Uh, one of the jokes we always say about Peter is, Peter, having nothing to say, said something. And any of us who have the gift of gab often are that way. We have nothing to say. We say something anyway. Peter asks some of the greatest and worst questions. We love that he asks them because a lot of us are thinking the same thing sometimes. And it was good someone asked them and that they were recorded for us to learn from. So at the transfiguration, he's so blown away. Let's build three booths. Let's stay here a while. This is kind of nice by the fire, so to speak. Let's keep this going on. Lord, if that's you out there, let me come to you. Get out of the boat. Come on ahead, Peter. He was always the one who was first out to say something, sometimes inappropriately. Get behind me. You don't know what you're talking about. You'll deny me three times. So if his strength is his verbal power in a good way, taken one step too far, it's his liability. What will happen when he's transformed? He'll preach a sermon unlike anything before. He'll lead the church in extraordinary ways. Now, this is my sanctified imagination, but I believe Judas' strength was money management. You wouldn't have one of the disciples who was a fisherman or a, a carpenter keep money. You'd have someone who knew how to handle money to keep the money. So Judas, as it were, was the treasurer of the twelve. He liked it, apparently, too. And what happens? His strength taken one step too far becomes his liability. He loved money too much, so much so he betrayed his friend. What will you give me to betray him? He asks the Jewish leaders. What will you give me? What's my portion of it? I got to make a profit here. One betrays, one denies. So the question becomes, what is your greatest strength? What's my greatest strength? And when do we take it too far? We all know. We can use the power of our personality. We can use the power of our position to get something. We own it. We run it. It's ours. I'm the teacher. I'm the chair. I'm the doctor. I'm whatever. It's my company. I can do what I want. And we can abuse that just because we have the power of it. And sometimes, this is scary, we don't even understand the power of being in charge. That, taken a little too far, becomes a liability, doesn't it? So, what do we learn from Peter's denial? Just maybe we learn to monitor our strengths. If if we're good at something and we know we're good at something, would it not make sense that Satan would like to use that for our disadvantage? Secondly, what can we learn from Peter's denial? We need to think deeply and act appropriately about repentance. To think deeply and act appropriately about repentance. Repentance is not when we're sad because we get caught. A friend of mine was pulled over recently. They were speeding and, um, on Carruthers. And the police officer said, you know, you were speeding. And my friend said, no, I really didn't. I wasn't even looking at my speedometer. And I said, well, you were. And I'm so sorry, but I have to give you a ticket. And the police officer apologized like four times. I'm so sorry, I have to give you a ticket. And my friend said, that was the nicest ticket I ever got. Think think what's happening there. Sometimes you have different experiences, but when you've done something wrong, what do we tend to do? Are are we sorry we got caught, or are we sorry for the sin? I have a vivid memory. It's one of those ones, you've got them too, that it's like burned in my mind. I can see it in the DVD. I can't escape it. And my oldest daughter Hannah is about five, and Jesse's one or younger. And Cindy had abandoned me to keep them for a night. And um, she always got upset when I said, I have to babysit? And she'd say, well, I'm with them all the time. Why is when you're there, you're babysitting? I said, no, it's just a guy thing. And so, you know, we're working on it. But um, so I'm staying at home and Cindy's gone. And usually I was a pretty fun dad. I would come home and play with the kids. And in fact, she would give me a hard time because she says, I, I'm working with them all day long and discipline and whatnot and routines. You come home and you break all the rules and you're, you're just their toy. You just play with them all night. And they go, well, dad, you're supposed to do, right? And so I had a lot of fun with my kids when I would come home. And so Hannah and Jesse were tired and a little uncooperative and I was tired and I was uncooperative and it didn't start well. So dinner was, became an objective of getting done with it and then uh, getting the baths and getting the teeth brushed and getting to bed without using duct tape. That was the objective that night and it was not going well and Jessie was young infant and she was in her crib and she would scream and cry because she didn't want to go to bed so I'm trying to get her ready and I've asked Hannah to get ready for bed and she has sort of been a little lax hasn't gotten ready for bed so I go in there and if you have girls uh, girls bedrooms are a museum of stuffed dolls and things aren't they I mean and, and her bed like all girls bed I mean you can't you don't Even there's a bed there, it's just stuff on it. It's just stuffed animals and pillows and blankies and little knick-knack, wax, whatever they are. And you got to get all that off, right, to go to bed. So she was to go in there and get her bed ready, and she hadn't done that. So I go in there, and I'm in efficiency mode, and I'm just pitching this stuff off the bed as fast as I can, and I'm mad. And I pitch her bear that she slept with a bear and a blankie, and I pitched her bear, and I can still see it in slow motion, both, both Hannah and I watching it in slow motion as I pitched it. It's going across the room and it lands in the Barbie pool that was full of water. And that's the bear she slept with. And I can still see a little five-year-old girl's shoulders just... It, it crushed her. And she went over there and she picked it up and it's dripping. And now we're going to have a little devotion and prayer time. So I put her in bed and I said some words over and I left and dealt with Jessie a few more times. And she finally cried herself to sleep. And then a little while later, I heard this soft whimpering from the hallway and I went down and here's my little Hannah crying in bed. And I went in and knelt down beside her bed and I said, Hannah, daddy was wrong. Daddy was mad. Daddy sinned. You didn't do anything wrong. This is daddy's fault will you forgive me? And that little tiny five-year-old hand patted me on the shoulder said, sure, daddy. Now, I don't know that Hannah remembers that story. She'll be here next hour. We'll see. I don't know if she remembers that story. But I'm convinced she would remember it in some form, in some way, had I not asked her for forgiveness. We are imperfect parents. We all have screwed up countless times and ways, but I hope as a parent, you've also done the right thing once in a while and said, dad was wrong. You see, repentance is owning your sin without any connective tissue to anybody else. I sinned. And what happens when we're young is we, if we don't see it modeled, well, yeah, but the reason I got mad is because you did this to me. Or the reason I had an affair is because you had an affair. Or the reason I stole was because you, I mean, we always are, you know, we we can't just say, yes, I did it. What would our court systems be like if criminals who were guilty said, I was wrong. I did it. We'd clear the court system out in no time flat. We'd say the taxpayers billions of dollars. Nobody's going to admit they're wrong because it's too easy to sin. Repentance is hard. But listen to me, living with unrepentant sin is miserable (coughs) compared to the freedom of repentance and forgiveness. The Holy Spirit is better than a guilty conscience. The Holy Spirit is not given to you and me to make us feel guilty and bad about how bad we are. The Holy Spirit is not given to us to point out all the things wrong with everybody else in our life. The Holy Spirit's given to us and if you come the 18th and 19th, you'll learn more, to give it to us to transform and conform us into the image of Christ from the inside out, and that work is difficult if you don't cooperate. Repentance says, I sinned, I deserve hell, I was wrong, I can't blame anybody else for the choices I made, period. The reason I'm mad is because you made me mad. I've heard that many times in my office. two thieves on the cross. I've used this illustration endlessly, but I think it's so profound. We have one thief who says to Jesus, paraphrased, if you're the Christ, get us and you off the cross. What's he saying in principle? If you're God, do something about our situation. And the other one says, don't miss it. Leave him alone. He has done nothing wrong. We, on our part, deserve our punishment. Time out. They were being killed for something they had done. We don't know what they did. They're being killed for it. And that guy says, we, on our part, deserve our punishment. And then he says to Jesus, will you remember me? This is all of humanity, men and women. If you're God, do it this way. If those people, if they would, why not? And the other one says, "I, I deserve to die. And I don't even have any right to ask you, but would you be merciful to me? Would you help me? Would you remember me? All mankind approaches God one of those ways. God hates pride. He hates the self-righteous. He hates the attitudes that were important. And he loves humility. And he loves the brokenhearted person. He loves the person who owns his or her sin and doesn't point fingers at the husband or the wife or the child or the parents or the employer or the person that ripped them off in a business deal or whatever it is, he he loves the person that just owns their sin and says, you know what? I don't understand why, but I gotta own my part. I've worked with countless countless couples over the 32 years and I can tell you the couples that have been through horrible situations, affairs, divorces, whatever they've been through, the couples where the individual owns their sin and doesn't blame anybody else, that's a healthy remarriage. And you can pick them out like that. Because when they come in and they're always living in the past and pointing blame and they can't get over the shame and all the hurt and fears and all those things, it, you never get beyond it. And the couples that will say, I had a dear friend of mine, many, 25 years ago, I got divorced and I knew his wife from college, both of them, I'll never forget him coming to me saying, Michael, I realized I got I to gotta change my whole approach to her because she's the mother of my children and I have to deal with her all of their lives. It was a Christmas break. He told me that. I'll never forget it. And he said, I'm going to be civil and kind to my wife, ex-wife, no matter what she says or does. And I'm never going to talk bad about her in front of our children. And that guy is one of the healthiest guys you'll ever meet. Does that mean she changed? doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because you're not responsible for what they do. Repentance says, I am wrong. I admit it, and I will turn from my sin, and I will ask God to forgive me. What do we learn from Peter's denial? Think deeply about your repentance and act appropriately about it. If you can't own your sin without blaming others, something is seriously wrong. If you cannot own your sin without blaming others, Something is seriously wrong. What do we learn from Peter's denial? How would you respond? How would I respond? If we're doing something wrong, we know what it is. You're looking at pornography. You're having an affair. You're on the edge of the ethics of your profession, whatever you're doing. And the moment you have the pornography on, the moment you're cooking the books, the moment you're lying a little bit about something— You turn and Jesus' eyes lock into yours. Now the spiritual truth is he watches us all the time. Right? But that's too abstract. That's too far away. It doesn't doesn't feel up close and personal. You know why? Because we're not walking close with Christ. The closer we walk with Christ the quicker we see our sin. The closer we walk with Christ, the the quicker we are willing to ask for forgiveness. The closer we walk to Christ, the quicker we are to say, I was wrong. The further we are from Christ, the further those things are true. Show me a man or woman who's walking close to Christ. I'll show you a man or woman, not perfect, but keeping short accounts, admitting their sin, working to reconcile, trying to grow in the transformation knowledge of becoming more like Jesus, not more like somebody else. By the way, Don't become like somebody else. Become like Christ. Your goal is not to be like some Christian. Your goal is to be like Christ. Don't forget it. What do we learn from Peter's denial? There's no such thing as a secret sin. Lewis Perry Chaper said, a secret sin on earth is an open scandal in heaven. But the good news is God is in the business of changing us. God is in the business of forgiving. He knew Peter would deny him, and he knew Peter would turn around. And we'll have the restoration of Peter in the Gospel of John that's beautiful. And we'll see how God will use Peter. Peter knew that Jesus knew that Judas was going to betray him, and Jesus knew Judas would not repent. And he would kill himself over it. One goes out and weeps bitter tears and repents and comes back. The other goes out and weeps bitter tears and hangs himself. The juxtaposition of those two stories go all through this part of the gospel. Christ is in the business of reclaiming 11th hour sinners. He reclaims Peter. He reclaims a man named Saul who becomes Paul. A man who was by his own admission a murderer. He was an accomplice at Stephen's death, and he admits in his own accounting that he was sanctioned to go out and bring Christians back to trial in Jerusalem, and he implicates himself as a murderer. And God forgives him and uses him to take the gospel literally to you and me. You see, if we don't confess our sin, we are not forgiven. And if we don't repent of our sin, we do not understand forgiveness. So we're hamstrung theologically, we're hamstrung in our spiritual growth, we're hamstrung in living in a community of believers. But if we acknowledge our sin, we own our sin, we don't blame others, we ask God for forgiveness, if we confess our sin, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us. 1 John 1, 9 confession is agreeing with God. I'm being, I deserve what I'm getting, the thief on the cross said. I deserve, what criminal being put to death by injection or otherwise says I deserve to die? I'm sure some do, but not many. The the reality is we're all on death row. We're all awaiting a final injection because we're all sinners and our God is holy. It's a dark chapter, but it's also a sober reminder that one who was totally innocent died for the totally guilty. And if he can restore Peter and Paul and all the New Testament believers, he can restore you. And he offers grace and mercy and forgiveness again and again and again and again and again. He loves you. He paid for your sins. He cares about you more than you can comprehend. And He does not want you to live with guilt and shame. He wants you to live with freedom and joy and a smile on your face. He redeemed you from a life of sin and death and gave you eternal life. Father, I pray for each one of us in different places, yet all the same. We're selfish. We went our way. We're quick to blame. We're slow to admit. We're slow to confess. Sometimes too quick to deny. Sometimes too quick to get angry and defensive. And we need your spirit, not just guilt and shame. We need your spirit to help us. So I pray that your Spirit who indwells all of us who have believed will have his work in us to transform us more and more into the image of Christ. We will limp with sin all of our human life, but the closer we are aligned with you, the closer we walk to you, you promise us the power to say no to sin, to say yes to you, to live in a community of people who will help us, and may we be repentant, humble, and enjoy the forgiveness of God's community. In Christ's name, amen. God bless you. Have a great week.